0: Hello there and thank you for downloading this Eye on Education podcast. We spoke to Isabel Abelhol-OBE who founded the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature and Magrudy's Bookshops and literacy was the focus of our programme today because we marked International Literacy Day with a discussion around the importance of literacy in the UAE. We spoke to Charlotte Greaves from Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai, about how they're helping to promote reading and writing among their students. Plus, as the UAE published anti-bullying guidance, we discussed the measures introduced and whether they're adequate with Barry Cummings from Beat the Cyberbully and Lisa Grace Wilson, the editorial director of Teach Middle East. And as educators call for a new model of schooling, we spoke to two innovative teachers about how they're making maths and science exciting for children this is eye on education on the agenda
1: with the royal grammar school Guildford, dubai
0: hello there yes welcome to our special schools segment this is our chance to put the spotlight on anything education focused uh, basically over the last week we collect all the headlines and we make sure you keep we keep you informed on everything that's going on in nurseries schools universities uh, and also obviously you know the post-grad and sort of post, post-study post period after once you're working as well. You know, education doesn't stop as soon as you leave university, that's for sure. Uh, and we are going to be discussing a few uh, of the more sort of tricky, testy topics over the next couple of hours as well. We're going to be discussing bullying. Uh, we're also going to take a look at the different ways in which innovative teachers uh, are bringing different teaching styles into the fields of maths and science. Two subjects which I know lots of children uh, sometimes struggle with. So uh, that should be a really interesting show. We're going to start. Zena's joined me in the studio uh, and we're going to kick off with a roundup of all the top education headlines in the past week. Now, as you can imagine, uh, things have changed slightly. You know, the schedule might have changed slightly in schools, especially British schools this morning.
2: Exactly, George. I was asking you earlier. So, are British Cools gonna do something here? Because obviously, Uh, A majority of students here in Dubai go to British curriculum schools. And it turns out British schools here are flying the flags at half-mast in memory of the death of Queen Elizabeth II. She died peacefully at Balmoral Castle in Scotland yesterday afternoon. And students have also been attending special assemblies in celebration of Her Majesty's life. Now, the UK has begun a 10-day mourning period and gun salutes will be fired in central London Later, But that's what's been happening across uh, British schools in the UAE.
0: Yes, in fact, my uh, children have been to one of those assemblies today. And I'm quite pleased, actually, because I wasn't quite sure. Obviously, it's always a rush in the morning. I wasn't quite sure how I would explain to the children, you know, the the relevance of the Queen and the importance of the Queen. And I want them to really be able to mark this date. And in the rush of getting them to school and get the packed lunches, you didn't really have a chance to have that conversation. So I'm personally, as a British person, quite pleased that that type of assembly is going on uh, in the schools, so that they can, you know, just mark this really historical moment, I guess.
2: Yes. And a lot of students here, you know, may be attending British curriculum schools, but uh, haven't necessarily been to the UK or haven't spent a lot of time there or don't have British parents, this is their opportunity to learn about the Queen.
0: Absolutely. Now, uh, meanwhile, a 10-point code of contact for all of those employed in UAE schools has been adopted by the country's Ministry of Education. This happened uh, within the last week, uh, but it's a really interesting document, of course, and it all uh, feeds into the fact that uh, we have uh, new people at the top of the Ministry of Education uh, and they are really making their
2: mark. Yes, and they're moving quickly with all these new, introducing the Code of Conduct, new regulations, special schools. Now, with special focus on Emirati culture and traditions, uh, this will serve as a roadmap for all those working in in the education sector to develop and groom future generations. Now, uh, some of the things that are mentioned in the Code of Conduct are, first of all, staff must always uh, encourage positive values among students and motivate them to participate in uh, what they call national activities. They must protect children from any sort of abuse uh, and refrain from causing any harm to the children verbally or physically. We'll come to that because bullying is one of our biggest topics today. Uh, And all employees must respect and be aware of Emirati culture and traditions, maintain a dress code and refrain from doing or promoting any uh, illegal activities. In addition to that, they must also treat the parent community kindly and respect cultural diversity. I like that last line. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Very interesting stuff. And obviously, last week we talked about the fact that uh, children, uh, Emirati children, can now wear. Uh, the traditional dress in school, kandura. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure that that must be part of this idea of protecting and promoting Emirati culture and traditions. Plus, it is a lot cheaper than buying the school uniform.
2: <laughs> that was, a, yeah, that was the point you made last week. Yeah. Yes, that was a big discussion. Yeah.
0: I mean, obviously, key, a key to it is, is is you know supporting and protecting Emirati culture. But I'm sure there are a lot of families out there thinking it's a lot cheaper to buy a few nice white Kandora that my children can wear all the time versus various different types of uniform.
2: I'm getting a deja vu of last We're week. We're getting a deja vu.
0: I'm not going to, don't worry, I'm not going to rehash it. We can move on to the next topic. Let's move uh, on. Because, of course, uh, teachers in the UAE have also been told to protect pupils from bullying, neglect, exploitation, and all kinds of abuse under these new rules. You know, they really pinpointed
2: that, didn't they? Exactly. And this is by the Ministry of Education. They've approved the Code of Conduct for Education Professionals now. They've listed several principles and types of behavior and ethics uh, that uh, educators should be following. And one of them is really protecting children from bullying, neglect, exploitation and, as I said, all kinds of abuse. Another interesting one is avoiding disclosing confidential information about the pupils and their families.
0: Interesting stuff.
2: Uh, Now schools in
0: Dubai are gearing up for the Knowledge and Human Development Authority's school inspections this year. Do you remember having school inspections when you were actually a student, a pupil?
2: Um, it was basically the principal just sitting in class and yeah. checking that everything was OK. Everyone, everyone was wearing their uniforms. The attendance was OK. The teachers, the teachers were respectful. Other than that, it's not as comprehensive as what the KD, KHDA is doing. Well, I, I remember the teachers being slightly nervous
0: and this sense of sort of children... Uh, us all behaving extra well on the day that the inspector was in the back there was a kind of feeling that we it was quite sweet in a way if you look back on it that's that feeling of rallying around the teacher and making sure you know you did your best that day that's you gave your best impression
2: because of course your teacher it it reflects on your teacher's performance and they probably gave you some sort of reward for behaving nicely but it's quite possible it's quite possible (laughs) and so
0: when are these inspections going to start this month by the looks of it
2: Yes, in September. So in this new academic year, the Emirates Education Regulator, the KHDA, they'll be emphasizing student well-being as a key focus because, you know, they do the, these um, student well-being surveys every year. Right. Yeah. And and one of the biggest uh, things that popped out is, you know, we need to focus on students' mental health, self-care, etc. They will inspect how school policies have been adapted to include wellness strategies. So that's going to be very, very interesting. And all schools that have passed their second year of operation will be inspected starting from September and newer schools will receive support visits. Okay, they need to prepare themselves for that. Very interesting
0: though the idea that, you know, inclusivity, support, uh, all of those are being really writ large in in those details. There's Definitely a theme to the way in which schools are expected to operate over here. Um, meanwhile, 10 private schools in the UAE have been ranked among the top 100 in the world by the luxury lifestyle magazine Spears. That makes it sound like 10 private schools in the UAE are amongst the most expensive. Is that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, because, I mean, it's a luxury lifestyle magazine. Luxury, that's the key. I was actually asking you about this magazine. Have you read it? Not what a it, great deal. I have heard of it, but it's not like up there with, you know, uh, I suppose Conde Nast's traveler. Okay. Like, I, kn- I know about Conde Nast's traveler, but maybe not spirit.
2: I'll look it up. I'll look it up now. Yeah. <laughs> schools, including Brighton College, Abu Dhabi, Dubai College, were named among the top 15 in the Middle East, which contributes to the annual global list. And many of the UK schools on the list segregate boys and girls, very traditional, while those in the US, Middle East, and Asia and Europe are mainly co co-ed, educational. Now, the, the Global rankings uh, include schools attended by royals, politicians and diplomats. So these are really high profile schools. Absolutely. I was,
0: uh, should I say it? I was was both pleased and disappointed to discover that my children's school was on the list. Really? Yeah, it just made me realise that I was just spending too much money maybe on school fees. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, this is a report from um, Abu Dhabi Police, an announcement.
2: Yes, Uh, It's a public service announcement from uh, the Capitol's police force. They're basically reminding parents because, you know, it's the start of the school. They've probably seen a lot of parents not doing this. Children under the age of 10 or below 145 centimeters in height must not sit in the front passenger seat of a car and children under the age uh, and that's the message for the police they've released a video on their social media platforms that explains five steps to ensure the safety of children inside vehicles. You can see those five steps and the social media posts on the ARN News Centre website. Absolutely
0: I am. I do the school run with like six children in the car and absolutely obsessive about seatbelts and booster seats I have six seats by the way, I don't like ram them in. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm absolutely obsessive about that. Yeah, So children should be buckled up, they should be safe uh, because it only takes do you know once I had to slam on my brakes and one of the children was naughty and hadn't put their seatbelts on and they got a bloody nose like oh, it, you only had to slam on your brakes. I was probably going five miles an hour like literally no, no speed at all and they got a bloody nose I felt That's so scary. guilty from now on literally I'm like have you got your seatbelt on we should all be doing that I'm a fanatic about it, and yeah, no small kids in the front because they just if, if the if the airbag goes off, it can suffocate them. This is eye on education on the agenda with the Royal
1: Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future ready young people.
0: Welcome back to the program. Now, as we just heard in our news, our education news headlines: Teachers in the UAE have been told to protect pupils from bullying, neglect, exploit. Exploitation and all kinds of abuse under new rules. Now Zina has been looking into this topic uh, and has a few more details.
2: Thanks, Georgia. Yes, that is one of the rules under the Ministry of Education's approved code of conduct for education professionals. Now the document listed several principles types of behavior and ethics that they should be following and the code clearly states that educators must protect children from uh, as you said all forms of bullying now one man who has been teaching parents children and educators to fight one form of bullying is barry cummings who is the founder of beat the cyber bully and he joins us live over microsoft teams how are you barry
3: i'm very well thanks good morning
2: Morning. Now your focus is obviously cyberbullying. Is this the most common form of bullying now? Because as we all know, children spend a lot of time online. And if you've got any figures, please uh, tell us about them
3: sure yeah um, I think that unfortunately it is uh, a more prevalent form now there's there's some statistics out there that around uh, 60% of teens have experienced some sort of cyberbullying and that's from the cyberbullying.org organisation 70% of teens have reported someone spreading something malicious rumours about them online and that comes from Science Daily research that was undertaken um, and then McAfee did something where 87% of young people have seen cyberbullying happen online now I, I don't have the, the, the data Data for what we would say you know, traditional bullying. But uh, I think that, yeah, unfortunately, because of how much time we're all spending online, uh, things like cyberbullying are becoming more and more prevalent. And uh, and we're seeing more and more young people, especially actually reporting it, which is it, it's, it's a sad state of affairs, but it's a good thing uh, that they're actually talking about it.
2: Staggering statistics. But as you said, uh, bu- you know, lots of young people now reporting it, they now have the power and they now have the knowledge to report it. Now, what constitutes cyber bullying among children? I understand there are many different types.
3: There are, yeah. There's lots of different kinds of cyberbullying. The the most uh, prevalent one, I suppose, is is saying mean things to each other. Depending on the age group and the language that's used at that point. Uh, but it also involves things like sharing inappropriate content with each other, um, with things like extortion and also grooming. These are these are different types of cyberbullying and online misuse. But they all all revolve around the continual action. And this is something that's very important when it comes to cyberbullying that it's ongoing because there are certain situations Situations where something happens and it's negative, and we don't want to condone it. But if it's a one off, that actually isn't always termed as cyber bullying. Um, it's this ongoing nature, which unfortunately the technology um, makes easier because, of course, our children, young people are taking their devices with them everywhere. Uh, and that means that the bullying can carry on when previously it would stop at the end of school. It goes with them to their home, to their bedroom, if they're allowed that in, uh, the device in their room. Um, and so, yes, unfortunately, it, it's happening across multiple platforms. And it's happening, um, you know, on uh, in different ways, things like outing, things like sharing secrets, things like sharing personal information, doxing. These are also things that happen in the digital space and that they all fall under the banner of cyberbullying and misuse, but it's it's a huge banner.
2: As a mother of two kids, uh, you know, that sounds really scary because I wouldn't know how to handle it if it happened to my kids. Now, uh, my kids don't use any social media platforms, but I'd like to know, you know for the older kids, on which platforms uh, does cyberbullying usually happen? There are so many of them now.
3: There are yes, there's so many different platforms, and unfortunately, um, it happens on all of them. is, is the uh, the unfortunate answer. Now, things like Instagram and Snapchat have the um, the um dubious honor of being the channels where cyberbullying takes place the most. But we have also spoken with young people in in the UAE who have been cyberbullied through WhatsApp, through Facebook, if they're still on there, through some of the online games that they're playing, through the the chat function there. So anywhere where there is connectivity and that they're they're online, unfortunately, cyberbullying can happen.
2: Now, we're talking about bullying in schools. In many ways, cyberbullying can go undetected uh, in schools, and it's very tricky for an educator um, you know, to find out whether a student is being cyberbullied. Is there a way to find out? Do schools normally have uh, guidelines on that?
3: And they definitely have guidelines, and there there are things in place. But as you said, it's really difficult um, to spot. Unlike physical bullying, where there might be some physical damage, as it were, and that that you can quite clearly see if somebody's got a black eye or a bruised cheek or a split lip. Um, when cyberbullying is happening or something in the digital space from a misuse perspective, there there sometimes isn't an immediate. Uh, sign, if you like, that you can say can say that, that that's what's happening. But it is on us as, as teachers, as caregivers, as parents to as much as possible, and it's very difficult in the education space because a lot of teachers have got a lot of children to look after, um, is to, to notice those changes in behavior that uh, we often put down to teenagers being teenagers and, and whatnot. But actually, if we're, we're paying attention, we might see a few signs where um, they, they were previously really outgoing and, and, and happy about things and they're going back into their shell or that there was one, uh, you know, one of the kids that was always talking about food, love food and now isn't eating. And, and again, all all kind of signs that on their own, you might say, well, they're just going through a phase. But if you put them all together, there can be sometimes some very clear signs that things are going on.
2: So educators must know those signs and must be able to respond to those signs. Now there are many students uh, that are probably closer to their teachers. They have a favorite teacher than their parents because they spend a lot of time in the classroom. So what if a student comes forward and says, "You know, Miss Tolly, I I've received this mess. I've been I'm being harassed online by my classmate. What should I do?"
3: Yeah, so this is where training comes into this, because I think that, um, again, as a parent, as as teachers, we we all have safeguarding in mind, and we need to have the the necessary training to know what to do with that, because it's not necessarily going to be somebody on the safeguarding team that is approached uh, by by a student, as you quite rightly said. So, you know, we we all had our favourite teacher, and we want to make sure that all of our teachers are able to answer that initial question with a positive reaction to say that they're very happy that they've been told about this that they've come to them that the door's open for communication uh, and to to foster that conversation and relationship to a point where um, we can ask that child you know if this is kind of going beyond my ability to help you are we okay if we together or an approach somebody on the safeguarding team or if it needs to go higher uh, we can do that
2: together. Now, just very briefly, my final question, we should also empower our kids with the knowledge of how to respond to a cyber bully on their own. How do we do that, Barry?
3: So I think, you know, we've been running beat the cyber bully for the last eight years. And if you talk to a lot of, of children now, they'll, they'll tell you the right answer to the question of what they should do if those, this thing happens. Uh, and then literally five seconds later, we'll turn around and do the opposite. So I think the only way that we can do this is to really help instill uh, certain things within our children. In order to empower them, we have to instill things like confidence and self-esteem within our children so that they understand how to deal with these kind of situations and perhaps the most most important thing is for, for our children to understand that in situations of traditional bullying and cyberbullying, it's usually an expression or a, a projection from the bully, uh, and it's nothing to do with the victim, as it were. And if we can help our children to understand this and that, that to, to look at it objectively, it's very difficult, of course, and takes time. But if we can do that, we can build that self-esteem and confidence within our children that will actually empower them to help deal with the issue of cyberbullying.
2: All starts at home. Thank you so much, Barry, the founder of Beat the Cyber Bully, and we hope you can join us again live in studio next time.
3: Would love to. Thank you very much for having me on.
0: Really interesting interview there, and fascinating to hear about how the responsibility really does fall in many ways on teachers. And that's why up next, we are going to be uh, finding out what teachers can do, the type of work uh, that they can implement in their classrooms to make sure that they're taking responsibility for these bullying guidelines. We'll be speaking to Lisa Grace Wilson, Editorial Director of Teach Middle East, in just a few minutes' time. This is Eye on Education on the agenda.
1: With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. School to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom, now accepting applications from FS1 to Year 8.
0: Right, we are continuing our conversation about bullying on our special program, our special schools program, because teachers in the UAE have been told to protect pupils from neglect, exploitation, and all kinds of abuse under a new code of conduct. Bullying is included in that, and needless to say, it is a worldwide problem. According to UNESCO, one third of the globe's youth is bullied. Uh, Low socioeconomic status is the main factor in youth bullying within wealthy countries, while immigrant-born youth in wealthy countries are more likely to be bullied than locally born young people. So how should bullying incidents be handled in a classroom? I'm joined now by Lisa Grace Wilson, who's Editorial Director of Teach Middle East. It's such a thorny issue, isn't it, Lisa? Thank you for joining us.
4: You're welcome. Um, yes, definitely a thorny issue and one that affects education globally. Um, you know, you can't escape it no matter how affluent or how deprived bullying is, is everywhere.
0: Have you seen it here? Have you heard direct examples of it? Because I have to admit that I've got quite young children and it hasn't really reared its ugly head yet in our family.
4: Um, if I'm honest, I haven't seen too many incidences of it. And where it had started, um, it normally is dealt with quite quickly, if I'm honest. I haven't. If I compare it to where I'm you know, from, which is um, the north of London, It really isn't as bad here um, where bullying is concerned.
0: That is really encouraging to hear, actually. I think in many ways our children are very lucky to be growing up in this lovely sort of Dubai or Abu Dhabi or UAE bubble. I mean, how are teachers taught to handle it? Are there specific guidelines? Is that something that you learn in your teacher training courses?
4: It is. So every single year, we as teachers have to do mandatory safeguarding training. Um, And in that safeguarding training, we are taught how to spot signs of bullying, how to spot signs of neglect, how to spot signs of students who are either self-harming or being harmed or being abused in any way. And we're also taught the proper channels of how to report that up. Um, to make sure that it's dealt with. So this sort of thing for teachers isn't strange, it isn't new, and it's always being refreshed. Every single year, safeguarding is at the very top of schools' agendas.
0: So my uh, fear, I, I suppose when it comes to bullying, I've got two fears. One would be that my children would get bullied. And, and I have to say, I'm not sure how I would know how to react to that because your instinct is to go in there fighting or maybe that's just me. Uh, and then there's, then there's the other concern because I've got two quite boisterous boys that they might be bullies themselves. And so those are two different types of conversations you have to have with your children as a parent, aren't there?
4: It is. So I have two boys as well, Georgia, like I told you, and they're both really rambunctious boys. Like I always go, God help your teachers, um, because they are really, you know, quite energetic. And and I do have to have that conversation with them. And I tell them always, nothing is, is off limits to mommy or daddy. Always tell us, even if you think it's silly. Once it feels strange to you, once you're not entirely comfortable with what was said or what was done, tell us and then let us take it from there. And then the other thing I talk to them about is kindness because I don't want to talk to them about bullying straight. I want to talk to them about how to treat others with kindness, how to make sure that what you're doing is not uncomfortable for somebody else or what you're saying doesn't make someone uncomfortable. And if someone says stop, because sometimes they're unaware, you know, they might be pushing and shoving and they think it's okay. And the other child is really uncomfortable. I say, once you see that someone is not happy with what you're doing, or they say stop, even if they're smiling when they say stop, stop because you do not want to cause harm to somebody else. So I'm always having that conversation. It's, and I think that's what parents have to do. You can't really go to small children. My boys are nine going 10. And even when they were smaller, I want to have that conversation with them. But I don't want to go to them and say, don't be bullied and don't be a bully. I want to say to them, what you're doing, if it ever becomes uncomfortable for somebody else, stop look make sure people are happy with what you're saying and what you're doing and also make sure that you are happy if you feel uncomfortable tell them to stop if it doesn't report it to your teacher first and then come home and tell mom and dad because it's important for them to know that anything they have to report it will not be treated with scant regard you're going to take it seriously you're going to listen and you're going to follow up and I think that's how we kind of help our little ones to deal with either being bullied or being a bully give them that space to speak and be heard
0: so i'm going to use my own experience as a bit of a case study because i think it probably happens to quite a lot of parents um my eldest he wasn't being bullied but there have been a few there was a well maybe he was but there were a few incidents with uh, someone uh, another child where that child had stepped out of the mark quite a few times and, and my boy had come to me crying and certainly it felt like a pattern of behaviour so I went to this other boy's mother and had a word with her and it was a really polite you know it was it worked really well between the mothers we nailed it like we were we were friendly we, we were like oh it happens a lot I'm sure you know it happens in this direction and that direction and I was like I'm sure it's not intentional but of course she then gave her boy a big telling off and as a consequence there was a real impasse between the two children and as a and the uh, this older boy refused to engage with my oldest for I mean literally for months as a consequence so I in that situation thought I definitely messed this up like how could I have done that situation better because clearly I did need to step in in some way but I just didn't really know the right way to do it.
4: I think there was a little bit of a missing step in in what you did. At, after speaking to the, the parents, then both parents should have brought both children together and had that nice sensible conversation with them both and ge- and you should have given them both the space to talk about what made them uncomfortable. I think that the other parent going and telling off that child might have made more damage done more damage sorry um, if they both kids had come together and he said, listen, this is what's happening, and ha- just really have that conversation. Maybe that child would have understood, okay, this is really making my friend uncomfortable. I won't do it. But being told off, he probably still doesn't understand what the fuss was about and just got upset that he was reported on. So that missing step, bringing the kids together, kids are smarter than we think, they can handle conflict, and they need to be taught how to handle conflict. So that step is so vital.
0: Really interesting to hear how you do that. I mean, what if you are nervous as a parent that your child might be being bullied? That they become withdrawn, they become quiet, or they seem like they don't want to go to school? And you're trying to figure out what it is, but they're just not willing to talk to you about it because of that thing they're worried about being described as a sneak or, or for telling tales.
4: You need you need now to get the teacher involved. You need to form your little tag team um, in which you get the teacher on high alert, this is what you've noticed, so they need to help you in the observation process and start to look and see what's happening with that child on a closer level at school and then start to report because I think in there you will find some clues. What's happening to that child at lunchtime? Because you're as a parent, you, you're not at school at lunchtime, so you don't know, but the teacher knows. What's happening to that child when they do group work in class? Where does that child gravitate to? Who is, who is he or she avoiding? Um, these, are, you'll have to sort of build a little case, especially if the child isn't open to talking, because that's only when you'll have to kind of be a little bit of a detective mom or dad and piece it together with the help of the teacher and the school and the classroom assistant. Do not underestimate how powerful those people are in observing and seeing what's happening with the child and helping you to build um, information and a case around why the child is behaving the way he or she is.
0: Lisa Grace Wilson really good practical advice we just got from you I feel like I've been through a sort of agony aunt process but really fantastic so thank you so much I'm sure lots of parents listening to the radio right now will be implementing that advice in their daily lives Uh, Lisa Grace Wilson editorial director of Teach Middle East thank you very much indeed This is Eye on Education on the agenda
1: With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future ready young people.
0: Yes, welcome back to the programme. Now, educators around the world are calling on school and governments to change how we teach our children because they say the current curriculum doesn't prepare them for a future world of work that, of course, is going to be increasingly shaped by automation and artificial intelligence. Now, some organisations, including uh, the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, have called for radical reform, saying the current system is too passive and more emphasis is needed on the four Cs, which are critical thinking creativity communication and collaborative problem solving so what should that new style of education look like now one organization here in the uae which has already made great strides in developing their own style of science curriculum is curiosity lab and i am joined now by their chief inspiration officer eugene kerrigan cool title eugene
5: Thank you very much. It's amazing what you can do when you uh, choose your own job title.
0: <laughs> uh, tell me, what is different about your classes?
5: Uh, I, I like to think everything, so, or everything compared to a school. Um, so I know you just mentioned curriculum. So, we, By design, we don't follow any of the national curriculums and we create our own content uh, because it allows us to, to deliver it in a, what we think is a more powerful way.
0: And so, how did you come up with your curriculum? Because I know you do, you're an after-school club, but you do at least, is, is it like 10 classes? So, you do one a week for the term?
5: Yes, yeah, so typically, So we, we teach through our module programme. Uh, so, that's kind of our curriculum so uh, a child would sign up for a term they'd see us once a week going through one of our modules Uh, so if the modules are curriculum what it is is a story that puts everything they're learning into a much more engaging context for the kids Uh, so it could be the story about being shipwrecked on an island and that allows us to do two things it allows us to increase engagement but allows us also to jump kind of wherever we want week by week, scientifically speaking, so we're not overdoing the same subject matter, so the kids don't tire of it, and they always understand why they're doing whatever it is that they're doing that week.
0: So, for example, if you've got a shipwrecked module and they'll do 10 weeks on that, I imagine one of of the rules will be the sort of the floating rule. You can tell I'm not a science teacher.
5: <laughs> yes, that, that floating rule. So, that yeah, rule. buoyancy and density. So, that would be, I would <laughs> guess, I'm mean, chair, around week six, where they're finally, they've survived the island using all sorts of other science. Uh, and now we're looking to escape that island. So, we'd be looking at building rafts and teaching the principles of buoyancy and density. Yes.
0: Um, I, I love my, my floating rules. It, it translated to buoyancy I like that. and dead too.
5: <laughs> well, that's per- oh, honestly, we would use that same terminology with some of our kids because we're, we're much more interested in their conceptual understanding than we are in their ability to kind of answer questions We we take advantage of not being a school. So I don't have to get them through a test. So that floating rule is perfect language.
0: Well, that's what's uh, that's really interesting because I feel like we'd sort of crystallise a moment there that that some of these big organisations who say that education needs to change, this is what they are getting at: that the current system is too passive; it's all based on sort of repetition. So you would learn the rules about buoyancy and flotation. I, I've even forgotten what it is, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, and instead you're you know the, you're you're using one of those four Cs, which is uh, you know critical thinking, creativity, communication and collaborative problem solving. I mean, that is raft building it writ large right there, all four being used in how to get off this island.
5: Yeah, that is those four C's. We kind of, so our ethos is... So the sort of background when we're writing our modules, we take what's known as a constructivist approach to education, which means we don't fact teach. So I'm not interested in teaching the children answers to questions. I'm much more interested in constructing an environment where they can make their own discoveries through their own creativity and their exploration. And quite often they can't even articulate their understanding, but you know their understanding's there. And it's that, that understanding that we think is the more powerful outcome because it's they can apply understanding elsewhere whereas the answer to a question there's only one question you can answer with that and so it doesn't feel as useful as what we do
0: i mean it just sounds brilliant and your instinct is like well i'm paying all this money on school fees surely this model could be brought into the school curriculum surely it could be this fun to learn about physics i hated physics at school my goodness (laughs) We had triple physics. Well, we had triple physics on a Wednesday afternoon. And the fact that I can remember that 24 years later gives you a sense of just how deep the dread was for the Wednesday afternoon physics lesson. Oh,
5: dear. Oh, dear. Well, I I mean, unfortunately, I'd imagine if I was sat having a conversation with any school leader. They're going to agree with we're not going to be having an argument. Uh, The challenge is, I think, I don't have a magic wand. So, yes, the simple answer is, yes, I would love schools to take an approach similar to ours. But it's, it's not easy for schools and national curriculums. It kind of has to move en masse. So we're... We take advantage of not being a school, uh, so it's easier for us to do what we think is a much richer experience. And that direction of travel for the schools, I completely agree with. I just Mm. don't, it it is a challenge to get there en masse. So when you're following national curriculums and when you're trying to get everything sort of the same across everyone it's difficult to bring in that creativity
0: yeah absolutely it needs to be a you need a top-down entirely different change from the topic one school can't just go off piece because they won't get the uh, they won't get the grades will they uh, chief inspiration officer of curiosity lab right here in dubai uh, eugene kerrigan thank you very much for those amazing insights i've seen pictures on the website they blow stuff up In a a safe way, but they do blow stuff up and and it looks like the children absolutely love it. Uh, So really fascinating work going on there. Up uh, in the next hour or so, we're going to be speaking to a teacher who does a similar thing, but with maths. He uses gaming to get children excited about maths. So make sure you carry on listening to the programme. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda.
1: With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai.
0: Welcome back to the programme. Yes, we are. Commencing our second hour of Eye on Education, a huge amount to get through over the next hour. We are marking International Literacy Day on our special education segment. Uh, That's as UN organised celebrations have been taking place around the world to remind the public of the importance of literacy as a matter of dignity and human right. And while progress has been made since the first Literacy Day in 1967, I'm speaking globally here. Literacy challenges still persist with. 771 million illiterate people around the world. Most of whom are women, and they still lack basic reading and writing skills. Now, the knock on effect of COVID 19 in the round the world led to millions of children missing out on school. We just in, earlier in the programme, we heard from UNICEF about the problems that they're facing in Pakistan with more than 12,000 schools literally swept away by those rainstorms. But the aftermath of the pandemic has also had a huge effect. Nearly 24 million learners might never return to formal education after they uh, missed out on a couple of years. Yes, and As ever, out of that number, 11 million are projected to be girls and young women. Now, here in the UAE, literacy levels are very high. Uh, Currently, 95% of the adult population is literate, but that has increased sharply. Only uh, in 1975, only half the population could read and write. And that is thanks in part to the country's integrated national literary strategy and a national law on reading. The government here really has placed literacy at the very centre of its educational policy and obviously it's paid dividends Uh, these children from royal grammar school Guildford, dubai told us about their favorite books hi i'm sasha
2: and i'm in year seven at rgsgd my favorite book is the screaming statue my favorite book is our castle by the sea because it's really interesting
6: hi my name is byron my favorite author is anthony horowitz
2: Ruby and my favourite book is Scarlet and Ivy number three. I'm Lucas and at the moment I'm reading the Sherlock Holmes books.
0: So you get a sense there of uh, some of the children here in Dubai and their favourite books. Uh, they, I know there's lots of children in the cars now because everyone's just done pick up. And I'd love to hear about their favourite books. Because uh, So while the mum and dad is driving, uh, maybe one of the kids could get in touch with us at 04871 5500. That's if you want to WhatsApp us, 04871 5500 Or you can text 4001. I want to hear how old you are and what your favourite book is. Please do get in touch with us while you're on that school run. Uh, but in the meantime, have a listen to this interview because Charlotte Greaves is Deputy Head of Prep for Royal Grammar School Guildford, Dubai. She's joining me now on the line. Charlotte, how are you doing?
6: I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having us.
0: Absolute pleasure to have you on the line. Uh, Very good to get a school's insight on literacy because, I mean, I've given you the stats there, 95% of the adult population here in the UAE is literate. So we're in a very good place compared to uh, the rest of the world and, uh, and obviously the developing world. But I mean, is literacy pretty much the foremost priority for any school?
6: It absolutely should be a priority. It's really important that we ensure children have those opportunities to go beyond their potential. And it should be embedded alongside a school's learning habits and their values. Today, literacy is evolving. It's not just about reading a book or being able to read the newspaper. It's about being able to be intellectually, um, culturally and electronically capable. You know, we're we're not just reading books, we're looking at things online as well. So, the Royal Grammar School is really committed to this and embedding those strong literacy skills. Uh, we really prepare the children in the first instance for learning, but also being world ready as well. So, it's enabling them to be proficient when using computer programs, when solving complex problems. It's about even how to use the internet safely and for purpose. Um, literacy is really evolving. um, So it's really important that schools have that at the heart of what they're doing.
0: Do you do that in a very deliberate way? Do you think this is how we are including this is how we are promoting literacy? Or is it almost, you know, um, tapestry? Is it almost sewn into the fabric of the curriculum?
6: Yes, I mean, it's absolutely intrinsic to everything we do. So in all aspects of, you know, from music to science to every part of the uh, curriculum, Um, from, you know, we have really fast paced phonics lessons for the little ones where they learn, they're learning to read with Fred the Frog um, and making sure that they're beginning to read fluently um, and that they're ready to learn and they're reading to learn. So it's that aspect of learning to read first and then reading to learn. Uh, We encourage reading aloud, quiet reading. We have the most wonderful library here and it's important that that's accessed at all times. It's not just closed. It's all there all the time for children to access. We want literacy to be really natural and so we also encourage our children that have English as a second language to learn in their home language and then we support them as English language learners to be confident when it comes to speaking in English as well.
0: We have of course had that amazing Mohammed bin Rashid uh, sort of uh, national library open just on the creek uh, in the last few months which has has, does have an area for children as well I mean it's something like six or eight floors of extraordinary books and 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 you can access that that resource for free i mean this reading must be that key strategy when it comes to improving literacy how do you keep children reading when they get to that age when frankly they prefer to be kicking kicking a football or playing video games
6: um so one of my key things is No matter what age a child is, continue to read aloud with them. It's really important. It expands their vocabulary. It helps them to um, recognise written words as well. So even if they're doing sports, it's about engaging children in, you know, maybe biographies, autobiographies of their favourite sports people. It's really about stimulating a child's imagination um, and really tapping into what they're interested in it expands their world it makes them feel imaginative Um, and the RGS we really want reading to be a treat and not a chore and if you know if we've got parents listening out there, what I really, really encourage is that you model this at home. Um, have a family book club. Share new words that you've learned as a as a parent. You know you're you're in work all the time that you might see new words that you're learning, and just try and get that quiet time away from the screen. Um, as adults, um, we know. We can't expect children to read and love reading and use it well if we're not modeling it ourselves. So it's really important as a top tip for parents out there Model that, encourage it, and, and you show that love of learning too and love of reading.
0: It's about having that discipline to put the phone down. I'm, I'm not sure I kind of make that win every day, but but I, I do try at least. And actually my eldest really loves um, comic books and, and that's been our way into the sort of reading cycle with him because he's not quite ready to read Harry Potter, but I want him reading. And so we've allowed these sort of more y style books. I can't remember the author now. This is the problem. You go on the radio and all the other thoughts leave your mind. Um, But yeah, I mean, they've worked very well for him. How about writing? Because obviously, I mean, I'm being quite old school in my in my sort of interpretation of literacy here. Uh, So I've done reading. Now, what about writing? How do you encourage uh, creative writing?
6: So, I mean, as we know, the two go hand in hand. And, and as educators, we, we have that long knowledge of literacy and the ability to read and write is tied into everything that we do. Um, and it ca- connects all of us, in- including speaking and listening as well. So i uh, here at the RGS we give um, children the opportunities to use their writing skills not just in class but out of class as well so an example of that last week we asked year six to write letters of application creatively thinking about um, you know all of the skills they've got to um, apply for leadership roles. So that was just a really, really engaging way of getting the children involved in that sense. Youngest children, get them involved in role play. And it's really important that they start mark making that we're looking at their emergent writing. The most important thing for me with writing is just making sure that it's about purpose. If a child is writing something and nobody's reading it, then it doesn't mean anything. So it's really important that, you know, you give that opportunity for children to write something and somebody reads it and then they will celebrate that and then they feel encouraged. And again, going back to what genres they like writing about as well.
0: Really interesting stuff there, Charlotte. Thank you so much. Lots of nice practical advice uh, for anyone doing the school run right now. Uh, Charlotte Greaves, Deputy Head of Prep for Royal Grammar School, Guilford, Dubai. Thank you very much indeed. And we've got lots of messages coming in uh, from children saying which books they like. Uh, Thank you very much. Henry says he loves his Harry Potter books. Uh, William says he loves anything By Roald Dahl. Uh, David has got in touch saying literacy is extremely important along with numeracy, but it is a huge parental responsibility and it's not just for the schools uh, to take responsibility on that. Interesting stuff. Uli, thank you very much for your message about functional literacy. Yeah, that is exactly what we're talking about. Very interesting uh, indeed. Now, we will be turning our attention next uh, to... People who are getting in touch with their memories of the Queen. Uh, obviously, we heard of her, very, uh, the Queen Elizabeth II's uh, very sad passing yesterday. Uh, I know that lots of people have wanted to get in touch with their sort of memories, um, their comments about this very historical moment. Uh, um, it's not just British people, but people from all around the world. And I have to say the outpouring uh, of grief from around the world has really been quite... Well, I thought it was quite surprising, but interestingly, some of the guests we've had on the radio totally disagree. They feel that it's completely in keeping with the Queen's stature around the world. We will be hearing from one of those guests, Isabel Abelhol-OBE, in just a few minutes' time. This is Eye on Education, on the agenda.
1: With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people.
0: Hello there. Welcome back to the programme. Now, we have been marking International Literacy Day on our special education segment today. Celebrations have been taking place around the world to remind the public of the importance of literacy as a matter of dignity and human rights. The UAE has made great strides over the last few decades in literacy. Currently, 95% of the adult population here is literate, but that has increased sharply. Uh, Only back in 1975, only half the population could read and Write. Now, obviously, there's lots of government policies that have played into that, but um, and and there's you know we host the internet the National Reading Week here in the United Arab Emirates every year. I think it's actually a month in March. Uh, so that gives you a sort of sense of how important literacy is here in the country. And one person who's really played a key role in the development of that and the enthusiasm for reading is Isabel abelhol OBE, who founded the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature. Now, we actually spoke to Isabel. Um, earlier in the programme on a different topic uh, because, of course, she was awarded an OBE by Queen Elizabeth II in 2012. And as a consequence, we wanted to really talk to her about her memories of Her Majesty. Now, Isabel was born in the UK, but she moved to the UAE in 1968. And, of course, during her reign... Queen Elizabeth II visited the UAE twice in 1979 and in 2010. And Isabel told me that uh, she met the Queen when she came to the UAE. Uh, she talked through some of the, her experiences while talking to Queen Elizabeth II and said that she was deeply saddened to hear the news of the Queen's death.
7: I felt, you know, as if I'd lost a member of my family. The coronation happened in 53. So for most of my life, she has been the Queen, who has always been the there, through every occurrence, every tragedy, every glorious moment. She served her country to the end. She swore in the new prime minister three days ago. She made that vow at the coronation. And since then she has carried out her duty from her heart and from her soul. So two occasions where I would like to sort of celebrate her life really was at the 2012 Olympics. I was very um, lucky to be at the opening ceremony in London, we saw her with um, James Bond at Buckingham Palace. Oh, wasn't that and then brilliant? a moment later, a helicopter hovered on the sky above the stadium. And I looked up and I thought, no, no, she's not going to parachute in. She did. Of course, it was a stunt double. But then she appeared as if she had parachuted in. Wasn't that an amazing moment? And then, as part of her Platinum Jubilee, Paddington Bear and her had tea with marmalade sandwiches. But that sums it up really, that she's she's in our hearts and will always remain there.
0: And absolutely gives a sort of sense of her sense of humour, doesn't it, there? That she had yes. this quirky sense of humour. She never took herself too seriously, although of all the people in the world, she had the right to take herself seriously. Uh, and and- and yet, you know, she was happy to engage with popular culture. She was happy to to play up to the fact that you know uh, that that with the in that James Bond scene of you know get rid of him kind of vibe. Uh, so I mean, it really was absolutely brilliant. You're quite right. What two, those are two really lovely international memories that I think everyone um, will 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 trigger their memories there as well. I mean, did you ever meet her personally? You know, did, because you were you 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 have an OBE that traditionally uh, that that ceremony happens with the Queen, but not all. With. Sometimes Prince Charles or one of the other royals takes part in that ceremony.
7: I uh, was uh, given my OBE by the King, His Majesty, Prince, uh, King Charles. Um, but I was very fortunate to meet the, Her Majesty the Queen on two occasions. Once when she came to Dubai in 1979, and I was invited along with other people onto HMS Britannia, and I was struck how petite she was and how beautiful, beautiful. I mean, she is stunning. If you're, I don't think photographs or cameras ever do justice to actually being in her presence. And she has the most beautiful, striking blue eyes. My eldest daughter, Dr. Hamda, presented a bouquet of flowers to her when she landed at Dubai Airport, along with the the late Sheikh. Sheikh Rashid was there to welcome her. So I have those wonderful memories going back to 1979. And then again, I was fortunate to meet her when she came uh, to Abu Dhabi in 2010. And I was sort of um, the person to, in a way, present. There were three of us that were there from the sort of a cultural background of the Emirates. So wouldn't all of us love to reach the age of 96 in the way her majesty did and to go in her own home surrounded by her closest family members. I mean, what more could any of us wish for? And I think that's what we need in this moment of of grief, uh, you know, both from in Great Britain, the Commonwealth and around the world, Um, we have to celebrate what she meant to all of us. And, um, uh, you know, that has the ended the second Elizabethan age Um, And it is something that in the history books, you know, in millennia to pass will be recognized as incredible, incredible Mm. um, era.
0: Extraordinary. I mean, the progress that's been made. I remember she's seen us through from from moon launches to the invention of the internet. I mean, it, it's just it's just the most extraordinary uh, passage of time. I mean, one of the big things here in the United Arab Emirates is that uh, the the British royal family and the Queen have really closely uh, ties with the leaders here.
7: What was that based on? Because of course they're from quite different worlds in many ways. I don't think they are. I don't think they are. I think that that is. Um, I think Britain has had you know an enduring love affair with Arabia. You know, it's it's part of it's part of fairy stories, it's part of myth um and they've always been entranced by it. And I think again there has always been great and deep affection between um um uh, you know the Arabian Gulf and and uh uh, the rulers of Great Britain, and I'm sure it, I might not be correct, but I have this sort of memory that pearls that were in Queen Elizabeth I's uh, one of her special crowns, had pearls from, from the Arabian Gulf in it because they were the most treasured of pearls in terms of their luster and their size. So, you know, th- th- this part of the world has held a sort of a magical place um, amongst uh, you know going back centuries amongst um, the royal family hey, Man- and I'm absolutely sure it will continue well and you must feel uh, very proud at the
0: moment because of course your your son Mansour is actually the UAE ambassador to the UK so he is literally uh, the figurehead of that of that relationship in on a
7: diplomatic and level I suppose Every mother shines with pride at their children's sort of achievements and opportunities in life. And I couldn't be more proud of proud of him. Um, And I, I, you know, I think um, uh, that his 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 sort of mixed heritage in some ways um, maybe is added value. I hope so. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure that's the case, and and obviously we are going through
0: all the proper channels to ask uh, whether Mansour Al might be available for an interview. There are various sort of uh, protocol measures that I that I imagine have to be uh, encountered first in order for an interview like that to happen. Um, so, <laughs> I
7: don't have to go through any protocols.
0: I know. I know. I need. I didn't have to. I didn't have to go through the the embassy press office to, to speak to you, but right. but uh, nevertheless, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I mean, as we look ahead, and you said that for the first time on the radio, I actually haven't said the words yet. I described uh, Prince Charles as Prince Charles earlier, but of course he is now King Charles. Do you believe that the strong relationship between the UAE and the UK will continue to thrive under his leadership?
7: I'm absolutely sure. He is a wonderful person. He's one of the world's leading environmentalists long before anyone else seemed to sort of be talking about it. I think he is of the future. I think he has a deep understanding of the issues of of today and, and, you know, are the natural, supposed natural disasters around the world. I I do think he will be, um, you know, um, a champion for you know deepening the friendship even more between Great Britain and the United Arab Emirates
0: I remember that very clearly from when I was younger. People used to joke about the now King Charles talking to his plants and being genuinely interested in the environment. And now he looks like a visionary. Now he looks like he was ahead of the curve because we're all now talking about environmentalism. And you're, and you're quite right. He, he was there well before the rest of us on that subject. Really,
7: really Organic, organic, growing yes. organic vegetables. Um, you know, not, you know, he grows the food and he eats it. It's not transported halfway around the world. So, I mean, I think, I think this, this, these are going to be, um, it's going to be his time to really put, put his mark on, um, um, you know, being the new monarch of, of the UK with all the relationships around the world. I mean, it's, it is, it's, it is a sort of a, um, and, you know, grief will stay with us. um, But, I think at times like this, we must remember and celebrate, um, um, you know, her life rather than this. I mean, this is a fact of life. The moment we are born, we have a clock ticking and no one knows when it will, when it will say your time's up. Um, but she couldn't have, um, done more. I mean, it's Mm. just, it was incredible how fast, um, the, you know, the change happened. And yeah. I think that must be a blessing for anyone who's in their 90s that actually uh, they can, you know, um, pass away at home surrounded by family. I don't, you know, I say that as an old older person, really. Um, so for that, I think um, we have to be grateful. Isabel
0: Abelhold there, of course, uh, the founder of the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature, sharing her memories of Her Majesty the Queen. This is I on Education, on the agenda.
1: With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people.
0: Welcome back to the programme, Right, It is time for our My Classroom feature. This week, we're doing something a little bit different. We're putting the focus on how gaming can help children learn because ultimately, educators all around the world are calling on schools and governments to change how we teach our children. They say the current curriculum doesn't prepare them for a future world of work that is increasingly becoming shaped by automation and artificial intelligence. Now, some organizations, including the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, have called for radical reform. They say the current system is too passive and more emphasis is needed on the four C's, and those are... They're different for the ones involving diamonds. Uh, They're critical thinking, creativity, communication and collaborative problem solving. So what should that new style of education look like? One organisation here in the UAE has already made great strides in developing their own maths style curriculum is Class Bridges. Now, they create maths resources based on popular video games, something that I know my nine-year-old and eight-year-old will be very pleased to hear about. The founder is Philip Wright and he joins me now on Microsoft Teams. Philip, how are you?
8: I'm good, thank you, George. Good to speak to you.
0: Good to speak to you. Good to have you on the radio. Tell me uh, what is different. Uh, I sp- actually, I'm going t- to just explain who you are because you know you've had decades of experience in the video game industry. You worked for global game publishers, you know the really big ones like EA Sports and Disney, and then you've created this resource, the resource of sort of maths classes. You know, but what is different about them? I mean, we've given the clue with games, but but what is what is the difference?
5: So
8: if we take the education space as a whole, there are lots of tools that schools and, and teachers are using to support maths, and, and they involve games. But one of the things that we see is people are creating games specifically for education. So Mathletics, Timestable Rockstars, you know, there are platforms and tools out there. But the challenge is that you then have to get the children onto those games or those platforms. So what I'm doing, uh, and you know, to, to give you a bit of a, a background story, uh, my my partner is a teacher in the UAE, a teacher for GEMS, and she needed a maths lesson, and I knew all of her students loved the game among us. So I helped her create a maths lesson based on that game, and all of her students were hooked. So what I'm doing is I'm coming, I guess, from a, a different side of the table to say, if children are already playing these games, whether it's Minecraft or it's Roblox or it's FIFA or, or something else, how can we create resources and learning opportunities by using those existing games? Because as human people, yeah, human beings, people whether you know, young or old, we generally learn better if we're doing something that we're interested in. So using that link to existing games and the games that children play you automatically have a hook you already have something that they are interested in so now you're just moving that into the education space to say okay well here are some maths questions but those maths questions are based on the game you already play and and the work that i've done with parents and the resources that i've created that feedback has been the children want to sit down and do their maths practice because it's interesting and it's linked to the games for me when i was growing up you know my grandmother would come around almost every weekend and make me sit down and write out my times tables until I learned them. It worked, but it wasn't fun. So now I'm trying to bridge that gap and say, okay, how can we make this a bit more interesting so that children want to spend the time? Because if we look at maths, you know, there are methods, there are ways of doing things, and sometimes it needs that repetition. So if we can encourage children to spend the time, but also interested in spending the time because it's linked to video games, they're much more likely to to spend the time, make the learning stick, feel more confidence, and then be able to take that into other situations and scenarios.
0: So how complicated is it to access uh, these these games that you've created on Among Us? I I have to admit, my children love to play Among Us. They'd be well up for this. Uh, And if I'm getting my sort of context-based education at the same time, then everyone's winning
8: yeah, so I, I guess the key thing is I'm not creating games. um I'm creating the resources and saying, okay, if we take among us as an example and and this goes back to to what I worked with my partner on the lesson excuse me, the lesson that she needed to do was about area and perimeter. Now the game among us, when you go into the game as a player, you are tasked with going around and and you know one of the levels is a spaceship and you go into different rooms and you you undertake tasks that may be, um, putting oil in the engine, it may be you know fixing the the communications, it may be cleaning up the cafeteria. there are different tasks, but each of these rooms has a different shape and size so being able to use that as the context and create a lesson plan that says, Redesign all these rooms. Here are your considerations. Here are some of the limitations you know maybe there's a maximum perimeter that you need to think about maybe there's a you know a maximum area that all of your rooms need to to work within. So it's about taking that that context and making questions from it. And what I've done is I've looked at lots of different games. I've identified key features and then I've turned that into a framework. Uh, It's called the Parrot Framework. And so each letter of that corresponds to a different key feature within a game that you can then use as a starting point to create maths questions. So to give you an example, the P in Parrot is for progression systems. Progression systems are things like earning points, improving your level when you're playing a game. And you can then use that as a reference point and and as a piece of context to say, ah, okay, well, if I'm having to earn experience points to improve my level, Mm -hmm. I can create a maths question that says, I'm at level 15. I earn 50 experience points for every quest. I need 600 experience points to reach the next level, how many quests do I need to do? So That's- now you're starting to to use that game context, but in a way that the child goes, ah, oh, okay, I recognize this, now I'll do the maths work.
0: Philip, I could talk to you for ages for this. It sounds very, very cool indeed, but I would recommend lots of parents to check out your website, Class Bridges. That was Philip Bride. He is the founder. We've run out of time here on Ion Education. There's always so much to talk about. Thank you so much for your time, Philip. Really appreciate uh, speaking to you and those ideas that you outlined there.